Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 99, Get Smart. This episode of Craftlet has been brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute. Join the fun and excitement at the First Summer Intensive, July 28th through August 3rd this year, 2008. And you can find them at www.goldengatefiberinstitute.org. Well, hello. I did not podcast last week, and I felt really, really, really guilty for it, but um, we came back from New York, and uh, drama ensued. Actually, drama ensued while we were in New York. We, we arrived with the humid, hot weather, and we left and took the humid, hot weather with us, which really stunk, because as you know, humidity and I, we are not friends. And literally, it was so bad that we couldn't leave our friend Jackie's house uh, Monday, all of Monday. We went to the Black Cow, where I have even podcasted from before, and we hung out there in the air conditioning and saw a bunch of friends. But aside from that, we were really stuck and had, you know, these enormous plans to go down to the Met and do this, that, and the other thing. It all fell through. We did, however, manage to get to the Museum of Natural History on Tuesday, which was the other part of our plan, and uh, and I did actually see some Craftlet listeners, and that was great, and hello, and I really found New York to be hot and disgusting and smelly. <laughs> so I think, I think this was the universe's way of telling me, yes, it's pretty, and yes, it's green, and yes, it looks really nice from inside an air-conditioned building, but really, it's a good thing that you moved to Arizona. Because uh, today, it's 107, and it's 7% humidity outside. And I'm not joking. I actually read that. And it feels wonderful. Uh, not not that it feels wonderful to be that hot, because when you're in the sun, it really, really is hot. But, you know, you can jump in a pool, or you can sit in the shade, and it's all very human and livable. And I'm not dripping all the time. So New York was wonderful. Uh, but but the drama ensued uh, while we were there. Actually, while we were at my grandmother-in-law's memorial service, which was lovely, and uh, the bench for her is up in uh, a garden that's just off 105th Street and 5th Avenue. Beautiful, beautiful location. And if you go all the way to the back of that little garden, behind the fountain, upstairs in the pergola, you will see that the center bench, the one that is right in front of the large circular New York medallion that's engraved into the floor, if you look at that bench, you will see a plaque dedicated to Vera Mencher. And it's really rather wonderful, and we had a great time, and got to see lots of family, and lots of people we hope will be family, and just basically had had a really nice, if hot, drippy, and disgusting time seeing people. But while we were at the memorial service, I started getting text messages from our house sitter. And as you will recall, we had Rosie the Wonder Dog, who ran away to her original owner's neighborhood and to the home of the family that rescued her. 
This was all well and good, and we got her back. And because she had run, we thought, well, golly, she's lonely, she's having a hard time. You know, doggies go through kind of shock when they are uh, adopted out into a new family. So we thought it would probably be better for us to get a house sitter for her rather than kennel her because we didn't want her to feel like she was being abandoned again. So we got our house sitter, someone who we've known for a long time, who also has a dog, and we had her bring her dog, thinking, you know, dog buddy, not such a bad idea. We did a trial run. They seemed to get along okay. It was fine. But... We told the house sitter, no matter what, please don't let her out in the backyard without watching her. Well, we have a neighborhood kid who the boy just ain't right. And we're not sure what's going on with him, but he has a bad habit of popping up like a bad penny. And this time while we were gone, he popped up and just walked into the backyard. He opened what passes for our gate and scared the gunk out of our house sitter. And evidently when he left, she didn't check. He didn't close the gate. So she went back into the house. She was going to take a shower after swimming and thought, well, I'll only be five minutes and Rosie will be fine outside. And Rosie ran again. She ran Saturday night. We didn't hear about it until Sunday in the middle of the memorial service. So I'm trying desperately to, you know, text information back to our house sitter and get information out and try and convince her to, I don't know, something wacky like hang up signs or anything. And it was all just very, very painful and upsetting. And we didn't tell the kids until we were on the plane heading home. We get home uh, early Wednesday morning. I immediately go out and start hanging up signs. Thursday, I'm hanging up signs. I'm visiting shelters. I'm looking at DOA books at the shelters. We have no sign of Rosie anywhere. And we haven't gotten a call from the family that she ran to before. And we have, of course, misplaced that phone number. Long, long, long story short, we are home Friday night. Well, no, long, long, long story short, we get another dog. Thursday, we get another dog from the Humane Society so that there will be a dog for our son for his eighth birthday, which is, honest to God, the only thing he asked for. So, new puppy's home. Her name is Amber. She is a strange mix. She looks like a corgi mixed with a coyote. That's not what she is. Um, Shibu Inu. Is that right? It's a Asian dog. I think it's the most popular dog in Japan right now. She looks like she probably has some of that in her, but honestly, Corgi and Coyote is probably a better description. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. She's sweet, 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 sweet. She's much more dog-like than Rosie was in that she, you know, jumps and licks and she's very excited to be around a human that likes her and, and she's just been wonderful. So everything's happy. Mom's over Friday night. We're having a little birthday celebration for my son. The phone rings, and it's Carmen. And Rosie's been there since Tuesday night. But she was very sick, and she couldn't call. So so now we have two dogs. And uh, we had my my stepmom, Jan, who is a dog woman. She came over for the meeting between the two dogs. They did taunt between the two dogs. And it went uh, pretty well. You know, there was a little 
kind of looking at each other funny and checking and making sure. And of course, they're two females, so that's not necessarily a good thing. But um, they have, after a few nips, and Rosie is definitely the alpha girl, and Amber, uh, who is smaller, has definitely decided that it's easier to be submissive than to be nipped at. They have found, they have found their way. And I'm thrilled because they keep each other happy. They keep me happy. And interestingly enough, when they are together, they protect me and the house much more so than either of them did individually. We've had a couple of people come into the backyard and, uh, both times the dogs barked which makes me feel really good because Andrew is going to be traveling again and I'm going to be here alone and now I have two big dogs who keep me safe they are both uh, crate training themselves it's kind of weird and not only that but Amber was never an outdoor dog ever I mean never an indoor dog ever she's only ever been an outdoor dog she has taken to the whole indoor dog thing like a fish to water she loves it she loves her crate she loves being inside. I've hung bells on the sliding glass doors so the, do the dogs can ring to go out and ring to come back in, which they do, both of them. It took Rosie about, I don't know, two demonstrations to figure it out, and it took Amber about two days, but then Amber had never been an indoor dog before, so the whole idea of needing to have your human let you in and out is kind of new. Wonderful. Just wonderful. And now we have two dogs, which I so never ever ever expected and my husband certainly never expected to have two big dogs and they are big Rosie's 56 pounds and Amber's probably about oh I don't know 45 somewhere between 45 and 50 so there you have it my my week <laughs> my week that I didn't podcast was taken up with travel searching for a lost dog and finding a lost dog and uh that took up really way more time than I had anticipated. But I have some, I have some other news for you. Uh, the first is to ask a question. Someone whose husband's name is James and the last name appears to be Key, who lives in Concord, California. Someone sent me a quantum leap pad uh, game for, I'm assuming for my son. It's a third through fifth, fifth grade interactive science book for the quantum leap pad. I don't know where this came from. I mean, my son has a birthday and I'm going to assume that this came from a listener because there was no card inside. It certainly came on time for my son's birthday. But if you emailed me to tell me you were sending me this, I didn't get the email. So please let me know from whence this came because I would like to, you know, send you a thank you. It's great. It's exactly what my son will enjoy reading. So that's that piece of business out of the way. I also have another lost comment uh, note for you. Someone left a comment on the blog, on the show notes, about the Irish knitting video of Stephanie Pearl McPhee. The comment that was left was, oh my gosh, I didn't know there was a name for that. That's what I do. If you have any questions about how to tension your yarn, email me. Well, I tried, but I can't email you back if I don't have your email address because your blogger account didn't include an email address to it. So if that was you, and if you left that comment for me, email me back at mamaonits at gmail.com. And the mamaonits is all one word. And once you email me, then 
I can email you back and then we can have a conversation and I can learn all sorts of fabulous things from you. Very exciting. I also needed to tell you that Becky, our our listener Becky, has her Etsy store up. It's www.bellacristina.etsy.com. As you may recall, a couple months back, uh, Becky did the incentive for the month. Uh, some lovely jewelry, a lovely necklace that she made. You can find more of the same now at her Etsy store. I'm very excited for her because that's a huge undertaking and... Um, and she's been such a, a huge support for for us and our podcast. I thought you should know that the site was now up. I should probably tell you why I named the episode Get Smart. It's because it's episode 99, and you will remember Agent 99 was, well, aside from Diana Rigg and the Adventures, Agent 99 was the woman I most wanted to be as a child. <laughs> I really liked both of them for different reasons, but both of them, mm that's who I wanted to grow up to be. Didn't so much work out except that I'm tall and I used to have brown hair before I started going gray and now have kind of blondish and brown hair. That is not the end of the story though. The Get Smart movie is coming out now and I'm hearing... here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing, wow, brilliant casting. You couldn't have done better than Steve Carell and Anne Hathaway. They're really both very wonderful. The problem, as usual, appears to be in the script. And I've been in a goofy mood lately. It could be because the dogs are kind of goofy. But I was listening to Mike Myers yesterday on Terry Gross's Fresh Air, and he was talking about being an old-fashioned kind of comic, which sounds very odd when you've seen things like Austin Powers or Wayne's World. But it is true in many ways that he is old-fashioned, because he's He's not a gag writer all the time. A lot of his humor requires an understanding of the complete world that he has built for you. Wayne's world in isolation isn't as funny as you understanding guys like that who do things like that, who talk that way and who act that way. And Mike Myers is very good at creating those worlds. Austin Powers, he really created a world that no longer exists. And he was talking about how, you know, growing up he would watch things like Singing in the Rain and American in Paris and he'd think, oh, I want to do movies like that. And in his own strange way, he said he has, Austin Powers has singing and dancing and Burt Bacharach and Elvis Costello in it. And they are kind of throwbacks and they're, they're not reliant on verbal gags. They're reliant upon verbal puns. And puns and long jokes that require you to understand uh, a complete setup, like like old Leslie Nielsen Police Squad or Leslie Nielsen movies did in the um, in the 80s. That kind of humor writing is intensely difficult to do. And people my age and under didn't grow up doing that. And I'm afraid that we're losing it. I mean, there are certainly comedies out there that can do it and can pull it off, but they are few and far between. And I don't know, there just aren't that many Buck Henrys around anymore. So, you know, I watched, um, oh gosh, what was the name of it? The Albert Brooks movie with Meryl Streep, Defending Your Life. That's the kind of humor. Funny, interesting, smart. And I'm not saying that Get Smart was highbrow. It's not. 
but if you go back and look at it and you get the cultural references that you had to understand in order to get the jokes, even slapstick and goofball comedy back then was more complicated than a lot of what we get now, except for The Simpsons. And even sometimes Spongebob, which I find odd. I don't know. It's my soapbox. I miss it. I miss it. I miss it. Not that, you know, F Troop was the best and the brightest, but Get Smart. Get Smart had its clever moments. And, you know, for those of us of a certain age, we say shoe phone, <laughs> and it means something. And it's not just the latest trio. Ooh, and on that note, I know I'm going to get lots of email from you guys about the humor thing, because you're going to come up with, like, 3,000 different explanations or examples of um, really, really great comedy. And I'm going to love it, because then I'm going to get to go look at everything. Maybe I'm just feeling morose about comedy right now. If you can actually feel morose about comedy. Oh, oh, speaking of comedy, I think I did a complete pratfall last week verbally. Did I use the word credenza for the word crescendo? I think I did. And (laughs) my kids had been watching the Cat in the Hat movie. And I don't know if you remember, there's a song about a, oh, it's some crazy Susian, although not written by Dr. Seuss, but Susian line that ends with credenza, three-handled family credenza. It's been stuck in my mind, and I apologize for calling a crescendo a credenza. I think I corrected myself, but literally in the middle of the night last week, or the week before, I woke up and said, oh dear, I think I actually did that, and I didn't edit it out because I didn't catch it when I listened to it again. It's embarrassing. Anyway, on the whole shoe phone note, uh, for those of you who are environmentally minded, uh, many of you probably already know about the long distance company called Working Assets Long Distance, which lets you donate a portion of your phone fees to various environmental and social action groups. There is evidently a new-ish, I don't think it's hugely new-ish, but I think it's new-ish enough, mobile company, which is an offshoot of working assets. It's Credo, C-R-E-D-O, and you can go to credomobile.com slash plan. Here's the interesting thing. They say switching is simple. We'll even cover the early termination fee charged by your current cell phone carrier up to $200 if you sign up by August 1st, 2008. Yes, that's right. So if you have Ryzen, AT&T, something like that, you can probably swing switching over. And they have some really cool phones that, you know, they give you for free or something similar to free if you switch over. So uh, if you're interested, you know, no affiliation, yada, yada, but I thought you might be interested because I know some of you um, pay attention to that sort of thing. Okay, now on to actual crafty stuff. Jamie Guthels at Interweave, uh, she wrote to tell me a couple of things, and some of them, if I had podcast last week, I would have been able to get this information out in a more timely fashion, but a couple of the things that she told me about have already closed for, you know, contests and sprees and things like that. However, Interweave News is now on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, too. A bunch of people are on Twitter. Thousands of people are on, millions probably at this point. Anyway, if you go to twitter.com slash interweave news, you can get twittered by them. So anytime important information comes out, not just goofy stuff like, hey, I'm watching TV now, but actual information on release dates and books and things like that. 
you're on Twitter, you can do that. If you aren't on Twitter, it's it's interesting. I think I told you about uh, Twitter.com is affiliated with IWantSandy.com, which is a personal assistant. I'm still using IWantSandy, and I'm finding it to be quite useful. Um, really good at emailing me or texting me reminders about things that I need to get up and do, which I sometimes forget about. So that's been very helpful. The other information from Interweave News is call for entries to Beadworks Beaded Book Exhibition. If you are a beater, uh, you should know that you have that now the opportunity to show your passion for books and beads in one creative effort. The entry period is from August 1st to December 18th, 2008. You can read the complete rules at the Interweave website. This is uh, an international juried competition and exhibition, and it says, The Beaded Book. Alter a book, recreate a favorite character, bead a page of text, or make whatever your imagination can conjure up relating to beads and books. The winning entries will be published in a gallery in Beadwork Magazine, and the actual works will be exhibited at the Beadfest in Santa Fe from March 12th to 15th in 2009, and at Beadfest Philadelphia August 20th through 23rd, 2009. So you can get information at interweave.com slash beads slash events slash beaded dash books slash submissions dot ASP, and yes, I'm going to put that on the website. Jamie also wanted me to let you know that there are also now Beading Daily forums on the beadingdaily.com website, and you can set up a profile for yourself and uh, hook up with other people. There's an Introduce Yourself forum, and you can start getting involved in discussions with other beaters. I also got an email from Erin. This was actually from weeks ago, but I haven't been podcasting for a while. She said that both red and white tea works for her in the morning and that her husband actually works for the Stash Tea Company. They have an online store at stashtea.com. They've been around for 35 years. They are a direct tea importer and they blend their own teas and they're extremely ethical and low-key about it. They work as to pay a fair wage and all the way down their supply chain as much as possible and they routinely do very good things like donate time, money, and effort wherever there is a ma- whenever there's a major crisis around the world. Um, and they, And this is the impressive part. Uh, she says so and I agree that they don't use that as a marketing point they just kind of quietly go about their business doing good things so if you're looking for red or white tea you might want to consider going to stashtea.com a couple weeks ago when I gave the banana bread recipe I mentioned something about mixing the water or mixing the milk and the baking soda I was sure that it did something chemical but I wasn't sure what Well, Elizabeth emailed, and she said, You have to mix the baking soda with the milk, because if you dump baking soda into any batter without mixing it with something else first, it will end up reacting unevenly. It won't get spread out into the batter quickly enough. I'm surprised it doesn't also call for mixing the baking powder into the flour before adding it to the batter. But baking powder is weaker, so maybe it's not as important. Well, it's interesting that Elizabeth says this, because, in fact, the original recipe, going way back to when I first started cooking this in 1972 says to sift together flour, baking powder, and salt, and then add that to the batter batter. And for, you know, a hundred years, I haven't been doing it that way. For one thing, I didn't have a sifter when I was in college, nor did I honestly have a sieve or a strainer or anything that I could use as a fake sifter. Now, of course, I do, and I have no excuse. It's just really embarrassing. But I didn't realize that it was the reaction that was the problem. So that makes me rethink also the cookie thing. 
She went on to say, you've probably already tried these things, but I wanted to give you my personal tricks for chocolate chip cookies as well. One, that some people really prefer them made up with butter-flavored shortening. She says it kind of grosses her out, but they're really good. Also, cream the fat and sugars to death, like up to 10 minutes to really get a lot of air in the butter. And you can use more brown sugar than white so that the cookies get softer with time, not harder. Now, my grandmothers were actually very crisp, so I'm thinking she probably used more white sugar and less brown sugar. I also use a mix of baking powder and soda to get a little bit more leavening and make sure both are mixed really well into the flour before adding to the batter. My grandmother may well have done that because her cookies, while crispy, also seem to rise a little bit more than regular Toll House cookies. She also said she recommends a dash of nutmeg. Uh, she said she, she's sorry, she's a chem major who cooks and has science books in with her cookbooks. And all I kept thinking was, oh my gosh, Elizabeth is my hero. I so wish I could have done chemistry, but I just totally chickened out. And uh, maybe I'll be one of those people who, when I'm 75, I go back to school and I take chemistry. I have a challenge for those of you who have uh, read Tale of Two Cities before and or just really love, obsessively love the book. Carla wrote, she's back a few episodes, but she wrote, on the topic of A Tale of Two Cities, I was wondering if you could help me work something out. When Mr. Defarge goes to the Bastille, he's undoubtedly looking for something like the letter that he finds, if not the letter itself. What bothers me is this. Surely Madame Defarge knew who the family was who had destroyed her own family. What significance did the letter have for her? Just the information that the line had been continued in Charles? Even this is doubtful, as he had been charged to atone for the wrong done by them, and surely he had met her before in that capacity. And why was Defarge so bent on finding something in the cell? Only curiosity because he'd been around Dr. Manette newly released? Or did he have a better idea of what might be lurking there? Did Madame know or suspect that he had attended to her siblings? Maybe it's the paint fumes she was painting the house when she was listening to the, the podcast. Or the fact that I've only heard it once, but I can't figure out what the purpose of the secreted letter serves except as a plot device to reveal the backstory to the audience and condemn Charles. I think Dickens is more careful than that, so I'm figuring I'm just missing something. Well, Tale of Two Cities has been criticized for having some pretty major plot problems, and so I'm, I'm wondering, I haven't gone back and done any research on this because honestly, it's been a week, but... I'm wondering if any of you have any specific information that we can uh, post for Carla. It's an interesting question, and of course this could be one of those moments when Dickens just needed a plot device. It's hard to know. So I'm throwing that out to you to see what you come up with and write back to me or post comments on the blog. We also have uh, a little comment about episode 98, uh, Susie the Slow Knitter which is a, a, a log on that I just love. She says, great episode. I love the idea of the girls playing Pilgrim's Progress when they were younger and still using that as a basis for their activities when older. I used to work with very young children and was always fascinated to see how they played and felt that the, Uni the United Kingdom, the UK education system, took them away from play far too early and that this had a negative effect on social and emotional development. And of course, I'm th sitting here thinking, gee, it's not like the states aren't doing exactly the same thing right now so sad. And she provided me with a good link for anybody interested in child development, which I will post to the show notes. She said, it's interesting how we view things differently when we are young compared to later in life. When I was young, I had no sympathy for Meg and Beth's aspirations. I thought they were a bit wet and saw myself as a Joe. Now that I'm a mother, I can see the value of creating a comforting home environment and the desire for everyone to be healthy and happy. And while I am still a Joe at heart, 
The other feminine characteristics seem so much more valuable to me now than they did when I was a know-it-all teen. Who knew? And I am reading that right before launching into chapter 15 because that's what today is at least partially about. Chapter 15 is a rather famous chapter, and I'm not going to break in in between 15 and 16. Um, for me, chapter 15 always makes me tear up, but it's it's about everyone pulling together. And I know people say very tritely, oh, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, yes. Yes, it actually does. Kids who are raised in environments where there is a neighborhood, where the neighbors are paying attention to them and family members are paying attention to them, and they are, you know, watched, (laughs) it's a good thing. And there aren't very many places where you can achieve that anymore. But beyond that, this idea of everyone pulling together and helping out when there's an emergency, you find that sometime in church communities or temple synagogue communities, And you find it sometimes in really tightly knit neighborhoods. It certainly happened when I was living in Brooklyn and my downstairs neighbor committed suicide, actually, in our basement. And it was very traumatic for not just we who were in the building and who saw him every day, but traumatic for our entire neighborhood. And when I say people pulled together, I really mean it. I, aside from 9-11, I can't think of another single episode where I saw more people mobilized to help than than that. That kind of social action, the kind that doesn't get a whole lot of press, I think is probably the most important kind, because it certainly makes us feel connected to a world outside our, our own little homes or our own little drama. But I think, honestly, it's it really matters. I think it's what has made civilization happen and work. And chapter 15 is is definitely about that. Chapter 16 is really and completely all about the importance of a mother. And I I know fathers in many ways get short shrift these days. Uh, They're certainly not portrayed positively on TV or in media in general. You don't hear a lot about great dads. And when you do, it's always kind of a surprise like, oh, oh, well, he's taken care of the kids this weekend. That must be so hard for him. Or, you know, when we were on the, the cruise and my husband was home with the kids and Don's husband was home with the kids and everybody else's husbands were home with the kids. If they had kids at home. You know, people were shocked and amazed. And wow, how could how could you do that? You know, you must have the most amazing husband to stay home with the kids as though it was this enormous burden. I know dads get short shrift, and I'm not saying that they don't, but as we just read from Susie the Slonetta, the necessity of being able to create a good home for your family is, um, it's a hard thing to promote these days because you don't want to insult women who have made the difficult choice to work long hours outside of the home in order to give their family a comfortable living. And you don't want to insult women who have made the difficult choice to stay home and leave a career behind in order to give their family a comfortable living. I think both choices are difficult to make. And I'm, of course, completely on the fence because I do both. So I'm I'm neither here nor there. I'm always a strange hybrid of things. 
But chapter 16 really, really is about how important it is to have a mom there who makes life comfortable and runs smoothly. And you'll notice that life without Marmy is way more hard on the March girls than life without dad has been. So with that, I will push you forward into chapters 15 and 16 of Little Women. Chapter 15, A Telegram. November is the most disagreeable month in the whole year, said Margaret, standing at the window one dull afternoon looking out at the frostbitten garden. That's the reason I was born in it, observed Joe pensively, quite unconscious of the blot on her nose. If something very pleasant should happen now, we should think it a delightful month, said Beth, who took a hopeful view of everything, even November. I dare say, but nothing pleasant ever does happen in this family, said Meg, who was out of sorts. We go grubbing along day after day without a bit of change and very little fun. We might as well be in a treadmill. My patience, how blue we are, cried Joe. I don't much wonder, poor dear, for you see other girls having splendid times, while you grind, grind, year in and year out. Oh, don't I wish I could manage things for you as I do for my heroines. You're pretty enough and good enough already. So I'd have some rich relation leave you a fortune unexpectedly. Then you'd dash out as an heiress, scorn everyone who has slighted you, go abroad, and come home my lady something in a blaze of splendor and elegance. People don't have fortunes left them in that style nowadays. Men have to work, and women marry for money. It's a dreadfully unjust world, said Meg bitterly. Joe and I are going to make fortunes for you all. Just wait ten years and see if we don't, said Amy, who sat in a corner making mud pies, as Hannah called her little clay models of birds, fruit, and faces. Can't wait, and I'm afraid I haven't much faith in ink and dirt, though I'm, though I'm grateful for your good intentions. Meg sighed and turned to the frostbitten garden again. Joe groaned and leaned both elbows on the table in a despondent attitude, but Amy spat it away energetically, and Beth, who sat at the other window, said, smiling, Two pleasant things are going to happen right away. Marmy is coming down the street, and Laurie is tramping through the garden as if he had something nice to tell. In they both came, Mrs. March with her usual question, Any letter from father, girls? And Laurie to say in his persuasive way, Won't some of you come for a drive? I've been working away at mathematics till my head is in a muddle, and I'm going to freshen my wits by a brisk turn. It's a dull day, but the air isn't bad, and I'm going to take Brooke home so it will be gay inside if it isn't out. Come, Joe, you and Beth will go, won't you? Of course we will. Much obliged, but I'm busy. And Meg whisked out her work basket, for she had agreed with her mother that it was best, for her at least, not to drive too often with the young gentleman. We three will be ready in a minute, cried Amy running away to wash her hands. "'Can I do anything for you, Madam Mother?' asked Laurie, leaning over Mrs. March's chair with the affectionate look and tone he always gave her. "'No, thank you, except call at the office if you'll be so kind, dear. It's our day for a letter, and the postman hasn't been. Father is as regular as the sun, but there's some delay on the way, perhaps.' A sharp ring interrupted her, and a minute after, Hannah came in with the letter. It's one of them hard telegraph things, Mum, she said, handling it as if she was afraid it would explode and do some damage. At the word telegraph, Mrs. March snatched it, read the two lines it contained, and dropped back into her chair as white as if the little paper had sent a bullet to her heart. Laurie dashed downstairs for water, while Meg and Hannah supported her, 
and Joe read aloud in a frightened voice. Mrs. March, your husband is very ill. Come at once. S. Hale, Blank Hospital, Washington. How still the room was as they listened breathlessly. How strangely the day darkened outside, and how suddenly the whole world seemed to change. As the girls gathered about their mother, feeling as if all the happiness and support of their lives was about to be taken from them. Mrs. March was herself again directly, read the message over, and stretched out her arms to her daughters, saying, in a tone they never forgot, I shall go at once, but it may be too late. Oh, children, children, help me to bear it. For several minutes there was nothing but the sound of sobbing in the room, mingled with broken words of comfort, tender assurances of help, and hopeful whispers that died away in tears. Poor Hannah was the first to recover, and with unconscious wisdom, she set all the rest a good example, for with her work was panacea for most afflictions. The Lord keep the dear man. I won't waste no time a-crying, but get your things ready right away, Mum. she said heartily. As she wiped her face on her apron, gave her mistress a warm shake of the hand with her own hard one, and went away to work like three women in one. She's right. There's no time for tears now. Be calm, girls, and let me think. They tried to be calm, poor things, as their mother sat up looking pale but steady, and put away her grief to think and plan for them. Where's Laurie? she asked presently, when she had collected her thoughts and decided on the first duties to be done. Here, ma'am. Oh, let me do something, cried the boy, hurrying from the next room whither he had withdrawn, feeling that their first sorrow was too sacred for even his friendly eyes to see. Send a telegram saying I will come at once. The next train goes early in the morning. I'll take that. What else? The horses are ready. I can go anywhere, do anything, he said, looking ready to fly to the ends of the earth. Leave a note at Aunt March's. Joe, give me that pen and paper. Tearing off the blank side of one of her newly copied pages, Joe drew the table before her mother, well knowing that money for the long, sad journey must be borrowed, and feeling as if she could do anything to add a little to the sum for her father. Now go, dear, but don't kill yourself driving at a desperate pace. There is no need of that. Mrs. March's warning was evidently thrown away. For five minutes later, Laurie tore by the window on his own fleet horse, riding as if for his life. Joe, run to the rooms and tell Mrs. King that I can't come. On the way, get these things. I'll put them down. They'll be needed, and I must go prepared for nursing. Hospital stores are not always good. Beth. Go and ask Mr. Lawrence for a couple of bottles of old wine. I'm not too proud to beg for father. He shall have the best of everything. Amy, tell Hannah to get down the black trunk. And Meg, come and help me find my things, for I'm half bewildered. Writing, thinking, and directing all at once might well bewilder the poor lady, and Meg begged her to sit quietly in her room for a little while and let them work. Everyone scattered like leaves before a gust of wind, and the quiet, happy household was broken up as suddenly as if the paper had been an evil spell. Mr. Lawrence came hurrying back with Beth, bringing every comfort the kind old gentleman could think of for the invalid, and friendliest promises of protection for the girls during the mother's absence, which comforted her very much. There was nothing he didn't offer, from his own dressing gown to himself as an escort, but the last was impossible. Mrs. March would not hear of the old gentleman's undertaking the long journey, Yet an expression of relief was visible when he spoke of it, for anxiety ill fits one for traveling. He saw the look, knit his heavy eyebrows, rubbed his hands, and marched abruptly away, saying he'd be back directly. No one had time to think of him again, 
till, as Meg ran through the entry, with a pair of rubbers in one hand and a cup of tea in the other, she came suddenly upon Mr. Brooke. I'm very sorry to hear of this, Miss March, he said, in the kind, quiet tone which sounded very pleasantly to her perturbed spirit. I came to offer myself as an escort to your mother. Mr. Lawrence has commissions for me in Washington, and it will give me real satisfaction to be of service to her there. Down dropped the rubbers, and the tea was very near following. As Meg put out her hand, with a face so full of gratitude that Mr. Brooke would have felt repaid for a much greater sacrifice than the trifling one of time and comfort which he was about to take. How kind you all are. Mother will, except I'm sure, and it will be such a relief to know that she has someone to take care of her. Thank you very, very much. Meg spoke earnestly and forgot herself entirely till something in the brown eyes looking down at her made her remember the cooling tea and lead the way into the parlor, saying she would call her mother. Everything was arranged by the time Laurie returned with a note from Aunt March, enclosing the desired sum, and a few lines repeating what she had often said before, that she had told them it was absurd for March to go into the army, always predicted that no good would come of it, and she hoped they would take her advice the next time. Mrs. March put the note in the fire, the money in her purse, and went on with her preparations, with her lips folded tightly in a way which Joe would have understood if she had been there. The short afternoon wore away. All other errands were done, and Meg and her mother, busy at some necessary needlework, while Beth and Amy got the tea, and Hannah finished her ironing with what she called a slap and a bang. But still, Joe did not come. They began to get anxious, and Laurie went off to find her, for no one knew what freak Joe might take into her head. He missed her, however, and she came walking in with a very queer expression of countenance, for there was a mixture of fun and fear, satisfaction and regret in it, which puzzled the family as much as did the roll of bills she laid before her mother, saying with a little choke in her voice, That's my contribution toward making Father comfortable and bringing him home. My dear, where did you get it? Twenty-five dollars. Joe, I hope you haven't done anything rash. No, it's mine honestly. I didn't beg, borrow, or steal it. I earned it. And I don't think you'll blame me, for I only sold what was my own. As she spoke, Joe took off her bonnet, and a general outcry arose, for all her abundant hair was cut short. Your hair, your beautiful hair. Oh, Joe, how could you? Your one beauty. My dear girl, there was no need of this. She doesn't look like my Joe anymore but I love her dearly for it. As everyone exclaimed, and Beth hugged the cropped head tenderly, Joe assumed an indifferent air which did not deceive anyone a particle, and said, rumpling up the brown bush and trying to look as if she liked it, It doesn't affect the fate of the nation, so don't wail, Beth. It will be good for my vanity. I was getting too proud of my wig. It will do my brains good to have that mop taken off. My head feels deliciously light and cool, and the barber said I could soon have a curly crop which will be boyish, becoming and easy to keep in order. I'm satisfied, so please take the money and let's have supper. Tell me all about it, Joe. I am not quite satisfied, but I can't blame you, for I know how willingly you sacrificed your vanity, as you call it, to your love. But, my dear, it was not necessary, and I'm afraid you will regret it one of these days, said Mrs. March. No, I won't, returned Joe stoutly, feeling much relieved that her prank was not entirely condemned. What made you do it? asked Amy, who would as soon have thought of cutting off her head as her pretty hair. Well, I was wild to do something for father, replied Joe, as they gathered about the table, for healthy young people can eat even in the midst of trouble. I hate to borrow as much as mother does, 
and I knew Aunt March would croak. She always does if you ask for a ninepence. Meg gave all her quarterly salary toward the rent, and I only got some clothes with mine, so I felt wicked and was bound to have some money if I sold the nose off my face to get it. You needn't feel wicked, my child. You had no winter things, and got the simplest with your own hard earnings, said Mrs. March, with a look that warmed Joe's heart. I hadn't the least idea of selling my hair at first, but as I went along I kept thinking what I could do, and feeling as if I'd like to dive into some of the rich stores and help myself. In a barber's window, I saw tails of hair with the prices marked, and one black tail not so thick as mine was forty dollars. It came to me all of a sudden that I had one thing to make money out of, and without stopping to think, I walked in, asked if they bought hair, and what would they give for mine. I don't see how you dared to do it, said Beth in a tone of awe. Oh, he was a little man who looked as if he merely lived to oil his hair. He rather stared at first, as if he wasn't used to having girls bounce into his shop and ask him to buy their hair. He said he didn't care about mine, it wasn't the fashionable color, and he never paid much for it in the first place. The work he put into it made it dear and so on. It was getting late, and I was afraid, if it wasn't done right away, that I shouldn't have it done at all. And you know, when I start to do a thing, I hate to give it up. So I begged him to take it, and told him why I was in such a hurry. It was silly, I dare say, but it changed his mind, for I got rather excited and told the story in my topsy-turvy way, and his wife heard and said so kindly, Take it, Thomas, and oblige the young lady. I'd do as much for our Jimmy any day if I had a spire of hair worth selling. Who was Jimmy? asked Amy, who liked to have things explained as they went along. Her son, she said, who was in the army. How friendly such things make strangers feel, don't they? She talked away all the time the man clipped and diverted my mind nicely. Didn't you feel dreadfully when the first cut came, asked Meg with a shiver. I took a last look at my hair while the man got his things, and that was the end of it. I never snivel over trifles like that. I will confess, though, I felt queer when I saw the dear old hair laid out on the table and felt only the short, rough ends of my head. It almost seemed as if I'd had an arm or leg off. The woman saw me look at it and picked out a long lock for me to keep. I'll give it to you, Marmy, just to remember past glories by. For a crop is so comfortable, I don't think I shall ever have a mane again. Mrs. March folded the wavy chestnut lock and laid it away with a short gray one in her desk. She only said, thank you, dearie. But something in her face made the girls change the subject and talk as cheerfully as they could about Mr. Brooks' kindness, the prospect of a fine day tomorrow, and the happy times they would have when father came home to be nursed. No one wanted to go to bed when, at ten o'clock, Mrs. March put by the last finished job and said, Come, girls. Beth went to the piano and played the father's favorite hymn. All began bravely, but broke down one by one till Beth was left alone, singing with all her heart, for to her music was always a sweet consoler. Go to bed and don't talk, for we must be up early and shall need all the sleep we can get. Good night, my darling, said Mrs. March as the hymn ended, for no one cared to try another. They kissed her quietly and went to bed as silently as if the dear invalid lay in the next room. Beth and Amy soon fell asleep in spite of the great trouble, but Meg lay awake thinking the most serious thought she had ever known in her short life. Joe lay motionless, and her sister fancied that she was asleep, till a stifled sob made her exclaim as she touched a wet cheek. Joe, dear, what is it? Are you crying about father? No, not now. What then? My, my hair, burst out poor Joe, trying vainly to smother her emotion in the pillow. 
It did not sound at all comical to Meg, who kissed and caressed the afflicted heroine in the tenderest manner. I'm not sorry, protested Joe, with a choke. I'd do it again tomorrow if I could. It's only the vain, selfish part of me that goes and cries in this silly way. Don't tell anyone. It's all over now. I thought you were asleep, so I just made a little private moan for my one beauty. How came you to be awake? I can't sleep. I'm so anxious, said Meg. Think about something pleasant and you'll soon drop off. I tried it, but felt wider awake than ever. What did you think of? Handsome faces, eyes particularly, answered Meg smilingly to herself in the dark. What color do you like best? Brown, that is sometimes. Blue are lovely. Joe laughed, and Meg sharply ordered her not to talk, then amiably promised to make her hair curl, and fell asleep to dream of living in her castle in the air. The clocks were striking midnight, and the rooms were very still, as a figure glided quietly from bed to bed, smoothing a coverlet here, setting a pillow there, and pausing to look long and tenderly at each unconscious face, to kiss each with lips that mutely blessed, and to pray the fervent prayers which only mothers utter. As she lifted the curtain to look out into the dreary night, the moon broke suddenly from behind the clouds, and shone upon her like a bright benignant face, which seemed to whisper in the silence, Be comforted, dear heart, there is always light behind the clouds. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 Letters in the cold gray dawn, the sisters lit their lamp and read their chapters with an earnestness never felt before. For now, the shadow of a real trouble had come, the little books were full of help and comfort. And as they dressed, they agreed to say goodbye cheerfully and hopefully, and send their mother on her anxious journey, unsaddened by tears or complaints from them. Everything seemed very strange when they went down, so dim and still outside, so full of light and bustle within. Breakfast at that early hour seemed odd, and even Hannah's familiar face looked unnatural as she flew about her kitchen with her nightcap on. The big trunk stood ready in the hall, Mother's cloak and bonnet lay on the sofa, and Mother herself sat trying to eat but looking so pale and worn with sleeplessness and anxiety that the girls found it very hard to keep their resolution. Meg's eyes kept filling in spite of herself. Jo was obliged to hide her face in the kitchen roller more than once, and the little girls wore a grave, troubled expression, as if sorrow were a new experience to them. Nobody talked much. But as the time drew very near, and they sat waiting for the carriage, Mrs. March said to the girls, who were all busied about her, one folding her shawl, another smoothing out the strings of her bonnet, a third putting on her overshoes, and a fourth fastening up her traveling bag. Children, I leave you to Hannah's care, and Mr. Laurent's protection. Hannah is faithfulness itself, and our good neighbor will guard you as if you were his own. I have no fears for you, yet I am anxious that you should take this trouble rightly. Don't grieve and fret when I am gone, or think that you can be idle and comfort yourselves by being idle and trying to forget. Go on with your work as usual, 
for work is a blessed solace. Hope and keep busy, and whatever happens, remember that you can never be fatherless. Yes, mother. Meg, dear, be prudent. Watch over your sisters. Consult Hannah. And in any perplexity, go to Mr. Lawrence. Be patient, Joe. Don't get despondent or do rash things. Write to me often and be my brave girl, ready to help and cheer all. Beth, comfort yourself with your music and be faithful to the little home duties. And you, Amy, help all you can, be obedient, and keep happy safe at home. We will, mother, we will. The rattle of an approaching carriage made them all start and listen. That was the hard minute, but the girls stood it well. No one cried, no one ran away, or uttered a lamentation, though their hearts were very heavy as they sent loving messages to Father, remembering as they spoke that it might be too late to deliver them. They kissed their mother quietly, clung about her tenderly, and tried to wave their hands cheerfully when she drove away. Laurie and his grandfather came over to see her off, and Mr. Brooke looked so strong and sensible and kind that the girls christened him Mr. Greatheart on the spot. Goodbye, my darlings. God bless and keep us all, whispered Mrs. March, as she kissed one dear little face after the other and hurried into the carriage. As she rolled away, the sun came out, and looking back, she saw it shining on the group at the gate like a good omen. They saw it also, and smiled and waved their hands, and the last thing she beheld as she turned the corner was the four bright faces, and behind them, like a bodyguard, old Mr. Lawrence, faithful Hannah, and devoted Laurie. How kind everyone is to us, she said, turning to find fresh proof of it, in the respectful sympathy of the young man's face. I don't see how they can help it, returned Mr. Brooke, laughing so infectiously that Mrs. March could not help smiling. And so the journey began with the good omens of sunshine, smiles, and cheerful words. I feel as if there had been an earthquake, said Joe, as their neighbors went home to breakfast, leaving them to rest and refresh themselves. It seems as if half the house was gone, added Meg forlornly. Beth opened her lips to say something, but could only point to the pile of nicely mended hose which lay on Mother's table, showing that even in her last hurried moments she had thought and worked for them. It was a little thing, but it went straight to their hearts, and in spite of their brave resolutions they all broke down and cried bitterly. Hannah wisely allowed them to relieve their feelings, and when the shower showed signs of clearing up, she came to the rescue armed with a coffee-pot. Now, my dear young ladies, remember what your ma said, and don't fret. Come and have a cup of coffee all round, and then let's fall to work and be a credit to the family. Coffee was a treat, and Hannah showed great tact in making it that morning. No one could resist her persuasive nods or the fragrant invitation issuing from the nose of the coffee-pot. They drew up to the table, exchanged their handkerchiefs for napkins, and in ten minutes were all right again. 
hope and keep busy. That's the motto for us. So let's see who will remember it best. I shall go to Aunt March as usual. Oh, won't she lecture, though, said Joe, as she sipped with returning spirit. I shall go to my king's, though I'd much rather stay at home and attend to things here, said Meg, wishing she hadn't made her eyes so red. No need of that. Beth and I can keep house perfectly well, put in Amy, with an important air. Hannah will tell us what to do, and we'll have everything nice when you come home, added Beth, getting out her mop and dish-tub without delay. I think anxiety is very interesting, observed Amy, eating sugar pensively. The girls couldn't help laughing, and felt better for it, though Meg shook her head at the young lady who could find consolation in a sugar bowl. The sight of the turnovers made Joe sober again, and when the two went out to their daily tasks, they looked sorrowfully back at the window where they were accustomed to see their mother's face. It was gone, but Beth had remembered the little household ceremony, and there she was, nodding away at them like a rosy-faced mandarin. "'That's so like my Beth,' said Joe, waving her hat with a grateful face. "'Good-bye, Maggie. I hope the kings won't strain today. Don't fret about father, dear, she added, as they parted. And I hope Aunt March won't croak. Your hair is becoming, and it looks very boyish and nice, returned Meg, trying not to smile at the curly head, which looked comically small on her tall sister's shoulders. That's my only comfort. And touching her hat a la Laurie, away went Joe, feeling like a shorn sheep on a wintry day. News from their father comforted the girls very much, for though dangerously ill, the presence of the best and tenderest of nurses had already done him good. Mr. Brooke sent a bulletin every day, and as the head of the family, Meg insisted on reading the dispatches, which grew more cheerful as the week passed. At first, everyone was eager to write, and plump envelopes were carefully poked into the letter-box by one or other of the sisters, who felt rather important with their Washington correspondence. As one of these packets contained characteristic notes from the party, we will rob an imaginary mail and read them. My dearest mother, it is impossible to tell you how happy your last letter made us, for the news was so good we couldn't help laughing and crying over it. How very kind Mr. Brooke is, and how fortunate that Mr. Lawrence's business detains him near you so long, since he is so useful to you and father. The girls are all as good as gold. Joe helps me with the sewing, and insists on doing all sorts of hard jobs. I should be afraid she might overdo if I didn't know her moral fit wouldn't last long. Beth is as regular about her tasks as a clock, and never forgets what you told her. She grieves about father, and looks sober, except when she is at her little piano. Amy minds me nicely, and I take great care of her. She does her own hair, and I am teaching her to make buttonholes and mend her stockings. She tries very hard, and I know you will be pleased with her improvement when you come. Mr. Lawrence watches over us like a motherly old hen, as Joe says, and Laurie is very kind and neighborly. He and Joe keep us merry, for we get pretty blue sometimes, and feel like orphans 
with you so far away. Hannah is a perfect saint. She does not scold at all, and always calls me Miss Margaret, which is quite proper, you know, and treats me with respect. We are all well and busy, but we long day and night to have you back. Give my dearest love to Father, and believe me, your ever own, Meg. This note, prettily written on scented paper, was a great contrast to the next, which was scribbled on a big sheet of thin foreign paper, ornamented with blots and all manners of flourishes and curly-tailed letters. My precious Marmy, three cheers for dear father. Brooke was a trump to telegraph right off, and let us know the minute he was better. I rushed up Garrett when the letter came, and tried to thank God for being so good to us. But I could only cry and say, I'm glad, I'm glad. Didn't that do as well as a regular prayer? For I felt a great many in my heart. We have such funny times, and now I can enjoy them, for everyone is so desperately good, it's like living in a nest of turtle doves. You'd laugh to see Meg head the table and try to be motherish. She gets prettier every day, and I'm in love with her sometimes. The children are regular archangels, and I, well, I'm Joe, and I'll never be anything else. Oh, I must tell you that I came near having a quarrel with Laurie. I freed my mind about a silly little thing, and he was offended. I was right, but didn't speak as I ought, and he marched home saying he wouldn't come again till I begged pardon. I declared I wouldn't and got mad. It lasted all day. I felt bad and wanted you very much. Laurie and I are both so proud it's hard to beg pardon. But I thought he'd come to it, for I was in the right. He didn't come, and just at night, I remember what you said when Amy fell into the river. I read my little book, felt better, resolved not to let the sun set on my anger, and ran over to tell Laurie I was sorry. I met him at the gate coming for the same thing. We both laughed, begged each other's pardon, and felt all good and comfortable again. I made a poem yesterday when I was helping Hannah wash, and as Father likes my silly little things, I put it in to amuse him. Give him my lovingest hug that ever was, and kiss yourself a dozen times for your topsy-turvy Joe. A Song from the Suds Queen of my tub, I merrily sing, while the white foam rises high, and sturdily wash and rinse and wring, and fasten the clothes to dry. Then out in the free, fresh air they swing, under the sunny sky, I wish we could wash from our hearts and souls the stains of the week away, and let water and air by their magic make ourselves as pure as they. That on the earth there would be indeed a glorious washing day. Along the path of a useful life will heart cease ever bloom. The busy mind has no time to think of sorrow or care or gloom and anxious thoughts may be swept away as we bravely wield a broom. I am glad a task to me is given, to labor at day by day, for it brings me health and strength and hope, and I cheerfully learn to say, Head you may think, heart you may feel, but hand you shall work away. Dear Mother, 
There is only room for me to send my love and some pressed pansies from the root I have been keeping safe in the house for father to see. I read every morning, try to be good all day, and sing myself to sleep with father's tune. I can't sing Land of the Leal now, it makes me cry. Everyone is very kind, and we are as happy as we can be without you. Amy wants the rest of the page, so I must stop. I didn't forget to cover the holders, and I wind the clock and air the rooms every day. Kiss dear father on the cheek he calls mine. Oh, do come soon, to your loving little Beth. Ma chère mamma, we are all well. I do my lessons always, and never corroborate the girls. Meg says I mean contradict, spelled C-O-N-T-R-A-D-I-C-K, so I put in both words, and you can take the properest. Meg is a great comfort to me, and lets me have jelly every night at tea. It's so good for me, Joe says, because it keeps me sweet-tempered. Lori is not as respectful, spelled R-E-S-P-E-C-K-F-U-L, as he ought to be now I am almost in my teens. He calls me chick and hurts my feelings by talking French to me very fast when I say merci or bonjour, as Hattie King does. The sleeves of my blue dress were all worn out, and Meg put in new ones. But the full front came wrong, and they are more blue than the dress. I felt bad, but did not fret. I bear my troubles well, but I do wish Hannah would put more starch in my aprons and have buckwheats every day. Can't she? Didn't I make that interrogation spelled I-N-T-E-R-R-I-G-A-T-I-O-N point nice? Meg says my punctuation spelled P-U-N-C-H-T-U-A-T-I-O-N and spelling are disgraceful and I am mortified spelled M-O-R-T-Y-F-I-E-D but dear me I have so many things to do I can't stop. Adieu. I send heaps of love to Papa. Your affectionate daughter, Amy Curtis March. Dear Miss March, I just drop a line to say we get on first rate. The girls is clever and fly round right smart. Miss Meg is going to make a proper good housekeeper. She hees the liking for it and gets the hang of things surprising quick. Joe do's beat all for going ahead, but she don't stop to calculate first, and you never know where she's like to bring up. She done out a tub of clothes on Monday, but she starched em afore they were wrenched, and blew a pink calico dress till I thought I should a died laughing. Beth is the best of little creeters, and a sight of help to me, being so forehanded and dependable. She tries to learn everything, and really goes to market beyond her years. Likewise keeps accounts, with my help, quite wonderful. We have got on very economical so fur. I don't let the girls have coffee only once a week, according to your wish, and keep them on plain wholesome vittles. Amy does well without frettin', wearin' her best clothes and eatin' sweet stuff. Mr. Lorry is as full of dittos as usual, and turns the house upside down, frequent. But he heartens a girl, so I let him have full swing. The old gentleman sends heaps of things, and is rather wearyin', but means wall, 
and it ain't my place to say nothing. My bread is riz, so no more at this time. I send my duty to Mr. March, and hope he's seen the last of his pneumonia. Yours respectful, Hannah Mullet. Head Nurse of Ward Number Two All serene on the Raffin Hannock, troops in fine condition, Commissary Department well conducted, the Home Guard under Colonel Teddy always on duty. Commander-in-Chief General Lawrence reviews the Army daily. Quartermaster Mullet keeps order in camp, and Major Lyon does picket duty at night. A salute of twenty-four guns was fired on receipt of good news from Washington, and a dress parade took place at headquarters. Commander-in-Chief sends best wishes, in which he is heartily joined by Colonel Teddy. Dear Madame, the little girls are all well. Beth and my boy report daily. Hannah is a model servant, and guards pretty Meg like a dragon. Glad the fine weather holds. Pray make Brooke useful, and draw on me for funds if expenses exceed your estimate. Don't let your husband want anything. Thank God he is mending. Your sincere friend and servant, James Lawrence. End of chapter 16 so a huge thank you to Adriana, who recorded chapter 15 for us, because it was egregious the way it was originally recorded. And really, seriously, I just couldn't do that to you. Next week, as you may realize, marks our 100th episode. If you have anything you would like to say and get it on the air, on Craftlet, for the 100th episode, please feel free to send me either a mp3 file or call on the caller line which you can find on the show notes at craftlit.blogspot.com and don't forget you can get earlier episodes of craftlit from the library at the craftlit.blogspot.com website as well and of course you can subscribe at itunes which i will say again shortly thanks have a great week i'm gonna go play with my dogs Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Please go to Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the goldengatefiberinstitute.org. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, blogspot. B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T or at craftlit.libsyn.com Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N and of course you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners and for that I am truly grateful. And don't forget, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs> <laughs>